this week on Unforgotten. Our first case that we're going to talk about today is the death of Richard Michael Hardin Jr. Early reports state that he was last seen at or near Fabius Coal Mines. Because I've seen no um, confirmation that a dirt bike was actually Michael's family, of course, as I mentioned, didn't agree with the drowning determination. They believed Michael had been murdered by a group of, like, six men. It was April 21st, 2016, when authorities responded to a small dirt road just off County Road 45. Upon arrival, they found a Chevrolet Cobalt and the body of 40-year-old Stacy Bell Sullivan. Stacy's relationship went from in a relationship to in a complicated relationship. I mean, how much time had passed and that car was still running? The only thing that can relieve that burden is fully confessing. Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And, and this, this is Unforgotten, Unforgotten, where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. And now for episode 21. Hey guys, and welcome back. What you been up to? Oh, you know, lots of stuff, but it's all top secret. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you just go ahead and tell us? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Buying a house, hopefully. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that's a good thing. We can use the room. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Cross your fingers and toes. (laughs) I like decorating, but then I get, like, overwhelmed. And so I end up with bare walls. Yeah, I'm going to have to kind of take it slow, I think. I'm going to have to, like, concentrate on one room at a time and just enjoy the house for a few. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have Pinterest boards? I do. (laughs) Uh, have it all me. planned Pinterest out. Pinterest is our time. friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How about you? Oh, you know, working for my birthday, yeah. actually. I've been know. working all week. Had court yeah. stuff going on. So, yep, yep. Yeah. But we had some exciting news because now that the weekend's passed, we can kind of share it. Um, yeah. Anybody that attended Rock the South and Coleman may have noticed that there were billboards scattered throughout the area. So if you saw billboards for any of the cases that we've talked about or you've seen on the page, um, like our social media pages, we would love to hear from you. And if you visited the expo, the Hunters Expo in Birmingham, 
Native Sense had a table set up where they had um, a digital picture frame cycling through graphics of the different unsolved cases that we've talked about or have posted about on the page. So if you were at either of those events, let us know if you managed to find one of the little Easter eggs. Yeah. And uh, just a reminder, if anybody was at the fest and wore their t-shirt, make sure to send us pictures so we can see. Yes, we love seeing the shirts and everything out and about. Not just there, anywhere. Yeah, anywhere. So this week, we're picking up where we left off, and we're starting off in Jackson County. Jackson County is the northeasternmost county in the state and holds an estimated population of 52,579. There were a couple of interesting tidbits I found when researching Jackson County. One, the county is named after President Andrew Jackson. Surprise! Probably (laughs) a surprise. I think the most interesting, though, is that the trial of the Scottsboro Boys inspired Harper Lee's novel To Kill a Mockingbird. I did not know that. I did not know that either. For those who aren't familiar with the trials, on March 25, 1931, nine African-American teenagers, Haywood Patterson, Olin Montgomery, Clarence Norris, Willie Robertson, Andy Wright, Ozzie Powell, Eugene Williams, Charlie Weems, and Roy Wright, were charged with raping two white women on a freight train. The teens were aboard the train looking for work when a fight broke out on the train between passengers. Two young white men involved in the fight were angry because they were forced off the train, so they conjured up a story blaming the teenagers for the incident. By the time the train actually made it to Rock Payne, Alabama, the teenagers were greeted with an angry mob and charged with assault. Victoria Price and Ruby Bates, the two women who were on the train, faced charges of vagrancy and illegal activities. To avoid those charges, they falsely accused the teens of rape. The cases were originally tried in Scottsboro, and on April 9, 1931, some fast-moving justice back in the day, yeah, eight of the nine boys were convicted by an all-white jury and sentenced to death. Roy White, the youngest of the group, was granted a mistrial because of his age. Even though there was evidence that contradicted the charges and one of the accusers retracted their accusations, the state still pursued the case. And the cases were tried and appealed twice in Alabama and argued twice before the U.S. Supreme Court. It took until 2013 when Governor Robert Bentley signed legislation exonerating all nine men of all guilt related to the case before they were completely cleared. That is nuts. I know. They collectively served more than 100 years in prison. Interesting quote from the Encyclopedia of Alabama. In legal terms, the case was likewise a gross miscarriage of justice. That's a great quote to come back from break with. It's actually the case that kind of urged kind of a reconsideration in how juries were impaneled as far as making sure there was a diversity among the group. Our first case that we're going to talk about today is the death of Richard Michael Hardin Jr. There's not a lot of information about um, the case. Our understanding is that it's 
been ruled a drowning and it's closed. However, it appears the family definitely disagrees with this determination. Richard Michael Harden Jr., or Michael, as he goes by, of Scottsboro was reported missing to Jackson County Sheriff's Office on October 24th in 2012. Early reports state that he was last seen at or near Fabius Coal Mines in Flat Rock, Alabama, early Tuesday morning, which would have been October 23rd. According to a February 2013 Time Free Press article, Michael had been out riding dirt bikes when he went missing. Five days later, on October 30th, his body was found in the same area where he was last known to be. The preliminary report stated he had likely drowned. And just for reference, according to Weather Underground, a Huntsville weather station recorded temps primarily in the mid to high 70s at that time. So it's not like he was out swimming. Because there is water. The Tennessee River runs right through there. So I imagine people probably do swim, you know, during the summertime and things. And in October, it wouldn't be that far-fetched to think that there are times where it is warm enough that you could probably still go swimming. But But rivers not as much, though. Usually rivers are cooler than, like, lakes and things. And that's you know, in northern Alabama, too. So it's going to be a little bit cooler than Mm -hmm. in some areas. Um, Right. And just because it's warmer outside doesn't mean the water is. You know, something that was odd to me about um, this whole story, though, is I did see that one article that said that he was dirt bike riding, but there's no mention of whether he was by himself. And I don't know that there's ever been confirmation that that's actually what was happening because I've seen no um confirmation that a dirt bike was actually found yeah um yeah but you would think there'd be somebody if he was there with a group of people they would know what happened yeah you would think so i yeah the whole thing is a little bit off at the time of the times free press article chief deputy rocky harnan told the media outlets that they saw no signs of foul play but they were still waiting on the toxicology report We submitted a public records request to DFS and received a copy of the autopsy and toxicology reports. Michael's death was ruled as an accidental drowning. His tox screen was positive for methamphetamine and alcohol. We'll discuss the tox screen more at the end of the episode. The autopsy report showed Michael's body was covered with mud and debris. There does not appear to be anything in the autopsy report indicating any type of severe trauma, such as broken bones or bruises, though some superficial linear abrasions were noted on the front of Michael's chest. I would love to know exactly what that means. Yeah. I I can't even really In my head, I have an idea, like kind of just, okay, like a cat scratch almost. Yeah. You know, it's kind of what I think, like lines. Yeah, linear. You know, but where well, they're not. Could it be? See, it almost seems like. Or maybe, like if you scrape your knee. Uh huh. Yeah. I was thinking like maybe hanging off a rock or something, you know, and sliding down. But mm-hmm. I don't like know. if you fall and scrape your knee, um, mm-hmm. but it's not like to the point where you're like, you know, bleeding. Right. Terribly. Right. As an aside. The report made note that the front of his chest was also redder than the rest of the skin. And, 
quote, apparently this area was not submerged, unquote. Seems to indicate that Michael was found on his back. It's hard to tell what that meant. Submerged means he was obviously in some water, but I don't know how deep the water was because I don't know exactly where he was found. Yeah. And to be able to see, you know, enough for them to, you know, mention the debris and mud makes it sound like he wasn't even in water, really, but maybe he was just on the shallow, you know, like shoreline or something. Right. And there's no mention of any clothes either. Yeah. And the... I think that's kind of what stood out to me about the linear abrasions on his chest is typically if you like fall and scrape your knee, you're going to notice that more if you have on, say, shorts versus if you have on a pair of jeans, Mm -hmm. Um, unless it's like a a pretty hard fall. Right. So you would think that if he had on um, a shirt or something like that, that maybe that would be a little bit more protected. Yeah. Well, so, you know, you, I don't know. I, this is just me. I mean, I know people dress differently when they're out riding bikes, regardless of what kind of bike. But, you know, you would think that they would have at least, you know, pants and maybe a long sleeve shirt on just for protection, even though that doesn't really protect you. People just think it does. <laughs> and I've been trying to think back on other autopsy reports that we've looked at. And I feel like they've all made some kind of reference to the type of clothing the body was received in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't remember. Or lack thereof. Yeah. And there's like, and like no, there's no reference. Yeah. You would think one way or the other it would be mentioned because usually they just kind of describe what they're seeing before they start doing any of the technical autopsy. And um yeah. That was just kind of odd to me. And that's not to say that there wasn't clothes and they just didn't mention them. That just mm-hmm. seemed weird. In late November, six people were arrested in the same area on alcohol and drug charges. So it seems to they be. They actually had a big write up about that. Really? Yeah. They actually did a write up um, in one of the newspapers about how that was kind of a trouble area and that maybe police had been paying a little bit more attention and patrolling the area a little more frequently. Kind of the place to go to do that, maybe. Mm. Michael's family, of course, as I mentioned, didn't agree with the drowning determination and created the Remembering Richard Michael Harden Jr. Facebook page to help circulate a petition to have Michael's case reviewed. Just kind of as a side note, too, I tried to find the petition, but what it actually looks like is they just made a post on the Facebook page and asked people just to sign, you know, a comment on the post oh. as opposed to like a change petition or something like that. I didn't see a link to any external petition. Yeah, um, I think it was just something that they had posted on the Facebook page where people could share it and comment to try to um, build up support, I think. That makes sense. A December 2015 post stated, quote, Well, it's sad for me to inform, but Michael's case is now closed. The only way it will be reopened is if someone comes forward with a confession or they have concrete evidence. David is still offering a reward for anyone who comes forward with information or evidence that leads to a conviction, unquote. So obviously the family really is very serious that they think there's foul play, but it looks like 
that was something that they received from authorities that they weren't too happy about. They made several posts on the page, but there was a comment made. They believed Michael had been murdered by a group of like six men. Oh. They didn't name any names or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if it had anything to do with the November arrest of the six people. That, that maybe it got. Maybe that's why where the six came for me mm. was because they did make the arrest of six people. I thought I read it on the page. Um, they did say, I know they said that it was a group of men, but I thought they put a specific number on it. And maybe yeah. I'm just misremembering. Okay. The page hasn't been updated since 2019, but according to the Post, David, Michael's grandfather, was actively pushing for answers related to his grandson's death and continued offering a reward in the years after his death. Despite the family efforts, it doesn't appear that Michael's case was ever reopened. In one of the last posts made to the page, they stated the witness came forward with information. However, they don't believe her statement was actually taken by authorities. According to the post, the family believes Michael was murdered by a group of men, as we just said, uh, who had not been arrested or charged, at least as of 2019. We did send an email to Jackson County Sheriff's Office requesting a status and any available records on Michael's case, but so far we haven't heard back, which is not uncommon, as you all know. I'm not sure that we will, but maybe. Yeah. We've had a, a little bit of luck lately, so you never know. You know, I don't know how I feel about whether... I think he was murdered or not, but some of the things don't quite jive, so I can understand why the family would think that it was, you know, not an accident. Yeah, at looking at that, the autopsy reports and the toxicology reports, I think at first glance, it everything seems to kind of line up with what they determined. But when you actually kind of dig into it, I'm with you that there are things that you kind of wonder about. Yeah. But sometimes weird things happen. Yeah, I was just going to say. And some sometimes people just don't write great reports. Yeah. But I can understand, just like you said, why the family would have questions about that. And if, you know, the report isn't right and somebody has information that contradicts what the report said, they should turn that in. Absolutely. Of course, we'll give the um, we'll give you contact information at the end of the episode. But um, please, you know, keep in mind if you remember anything from back then, if you were out dirt bike riding and remembered seeing Michael or anything related to it that you might think could have anything to do with it, make sure you get that into the authorities or you can always send it to us if you're unsure if it's really something you should send in we don't mind looking at it but we'll forward it on our next case takes us across the tennessee river and roughly 20 miles down the road to the fackler community it was april 21st 2016 when authorities responded to a small dirt road just off county road 45 prompted by a concerned landowner who reported an abandoned vehicle to their surprise, upon arrival, they found a Chevrolet Cobalt and the body of 40-year-old Stacy Bell Sullivan. There were only a couple of vague news articles related to Stacy's death, and those came out basically when her body was found. 
and they contained no information about who Stacy was as a person or things that may have been going on in her life. So we turned to social media. Based on comments made across social media, Stacy was a caring and kind person who adored her two children, and it appears she was generally well liked by those who knew her. According to family members, Stacy was enrolled in nursing school and was set to graduate in May of 2016. I feel like we've heard a lot of people are enrolled in nursing school lately. It's funny. When I say we- lately. I mean, I don't mean it as in like we've just heard about it lately. But I feel like we've talked a lot about a lot of cases in nursing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it was actually the first thing I was thinking as you were saying that. Um, and I think yeah. when we start looking at these things. <laughs> When we start looking at the cases, things like this start popping out, and it's like, man, there are some like consistencies or like commonalities that kind of yeah. come out, and it's sometimes it's it hard kinda, to ignore. It is hard to ignore sometimes, and you kind of wonder if you should start tracking some of the things that stand out. Yes, like white shoes, like white shoes. <laughs> From the outside looking in, it looks like Stacy's life was going well. But a look at her personal page gave us a different perspective. Sounds familiar, does it not? It does. It happens a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think you can kind of look at the comments and see that those that were closest to her knew that things were going on. She had recently left a relationship, and I think that was an abusive relationship. Um... Her family was concerned about her based on comments that had been left They were off- where they were offering support to her, but they were also saying they were worried. It was a long-term relationship based on things that were said. Also not the first time we heard that. On March 12, 2016, Stacy's relationship went from in a relationship to in a complicated relationship, which one friend responded, surprise, surprise, let me guess, Scotty maybe? However, it wasn't long before that complicated relationship apparently ended for good. On April 11, 2016, Stacy made a post. Just went and seen the last seven years of my life in one little storage unit. For the first time in three weeks, it's real. And for the first time, I'm truly shattered to the depths of my soul. I haven't cried or thought about it much because I've tried to be strong. But it, now it's too real and too painful. I've changed my number and everything, but dear Lord, I have never felt pain like this. The tears won't stop and I'm devastated. My heart and soul are broken and I feel like part of me has died. Just reading through the comments on that particular post, it's apparent that Stacy had a pretty wonderful support system and a family who loved her dearly. It's also obvious through the comments that they were concerned about her, like I said, and for good reason. Right. Because on March 28, 2016, just 14 days before Stacy made that post, Stacy filed a petition for protection from abuse in the Jackson County Circuit Court, requesting a restraining order against Scotty Peak. I have to say that it's frustrating when you read about these cases that they've been tr- they tried to get restraining orders. It feels like I don't know. It feels like they. You don't want to tell people not to get a restraining order, but it feels like it's not helpful. Um, and at I the know same it's, time, it's a step in the legal process so that they can legally do something if they can 
intervene in time, but it doesn't seem like in these cases because they're the cases that we're looking at, obviously they're cold, but it just feels like they aren't very helpful. Yes. And we're not pointing any fingers at anybody. This Mm -hmm. is just a general scenario because oftentimes in situations like this, by the time the police get ready to do something about it or arrive to do something about it, it's too late. Yeah. There's so many times that you read about domestic violence situations that have turned fatal and the piece of they there was a restraining order the piece of paper didn't save them right and it, it is necessary because it does allow you that legal process to be able to do something but it's still scary and it's still sad and it's heartbreaking i agree in the petition, Stacy alleged that on March 22nd, 2016, at 89 County Road 769 in Hinegar, Alabama, Scotty poured pickled egg juice, pepper juice, shampoo, conditioner, and cough syrup all over her before hitting and kicking her. According to the paperwork, Stacy did file criminal charges in Jackson County related to the incident. In the space provided for genuine fear of further abuse, Stacy wrote, I am scared, and he threatens me gets mad all the time, and slings me around, tears all my personal property up. She requested the court issue a restraining order against Scotty and ordered him to cease any physical or violent contact with her or her property. She also requested the court give her temporary possession of the 2010 Chevrolet Cobalt that was owned in both their names. Just one day after Stacy's Facebook post about seeing her belongings in storage. Keep that car in mind. Unfortunately, neither party appeared on the April 12, 2016 date, though the notes in the case action summary indicate that about an hour after that scheduled hearing, Stacy contacted the clerk's office and stated she had been unaware of the court hearing as the notice had been sent to her mother's address, which was not checked daily. It appears the court offered to let Stacy come in later that day, but Stacy contacted the clerk's office a little later that afternoon and stated she couldn't afford to put gas in her car to make it to the courthouse that day. The hearing was ultimately rescheduled to May 10th at 1.30, which she never made it to. Stacy's Facebook page consisted of mostly quotes and photos that she identified with and a few personal posts scattered here and there and pictures of her children. She continued to be active until April 20th, 2016, which is the day that life for Stacy's family would forever be changed. So when I was looking at that case action summary, it looks like there's several orders that are actually, it says e-filed, but you can't see those, which is odd to me because they're e-filed. They should be publicly available. They're not. But one thing that stood out to me was when they rescheduled the court hearing from that April date to the May date, they apparently sent the notice out for personal service, which means it probably went out with the sheriff's office, not the sheriff specifically, but somebody from the sheriff's office. Stacy was served her notice, according to the case action summary, on April 20th. Scotty was served his notice on April 21st. Hmm. It says those also were e-filings, um, where, they served, where they filed the notice of service. Those aren't available to the public either, and I really would like to see those because I would like to know what time did they serve Stacy that notice? 
Right. Did she sign for it personally? Where did they serve her? Because that would really help narrow down some time frames. It sure would, yeah. And obviously, somebody from the sheriff's office would have seen her. Huh, that's a very good point. And the chances are they would have also had Scotty notice with them, too. So I'd really like to see those, to see the dates and times that they made those services and where they were at. They're not public. Why not? The petition's yeah. public. So on April 20th, 2016, around 2.30 p.m. in the small community of Fackler, Stacy approached a local residence home and explained that she had arranged to meet a man, who she didn't name, in that area, and that her car had gotten stuck in some mud on a small dirt road just off County Road 45. Her car was the Chevrolet Cobalt that she had asked for the court to give her temporary possession of, since it was in both hers and Scotty's name. Stacy asked if she could borrow their phone to contact her children's school and let them know she'd be late picking up the kids. After making that call, she presumably headed back to her stranded car in hopes of figuring out that situation. That's the last time that we know of that Stacy was seen, and the time on that is just kind of a rough guesstimate. Hours later, Stacy had not picked up her children, nor had she returned home. With no contact from her, her family's concern continued growing, and a missing person report was filed with the Jackson County Sheriff's Office later that evening. Unbeknownst to the family, just prior to the filing of that report, Jackson County had actually received a call from a landowner in Fackler around 8 p.m. I think their articles that I read said somewhere between 7.30 and 8, reporting an abandoned car. When authorities arrived, they discovered Stacy's Chevrolet Cobalt still running and still stuck, along with signs someone had unsuccessfully attempted to extricate the car from the mud. According to family members, there were footprints and tire tracks in the area around the car, along with handprints on the outside of the car. That's really crazy that the car was still running and all of that around the car. I mean, how much time had passed and that car was still running? I guess we don't really know, but... It was before school got out, at least, mm -hmm. because she called to let the school know that um, she was going to be late picking up the kids, so we know right. it was at least then. That's true. And we don't know what time she got there before then, but if we knew what time she got served and where she got served at, that might would help. That would roll it down a little bit, yeah, narrow it down. Unfortunately, it wasn't just Stacy's car authorities found. Roughly 500 to 600 yards away from the Cobalt, near the adjacent railroad tracks, they discovered Stacy's lifeless body laying face down in the mud and partially disrobed. Reports emerged about a former boyfriend of Stacy's being arrested on the same evening she was found. However, officials stated that the arrest was related to an outstanding warrant on a domestic violence charge and unrelated to Stacy's death. They've never released the name of that former boyfriend. But yeah, I was seems, just going to ask if we did, because I noticed that that wasn't in here. Uh, that wasn't in your notes. And No, they did not. I could speculate, but I probably shouldn't. Yeah. But it's not listed in any of the um, articles that I read. Yeah. To date, officials have never confirmed the identity of any individual with Stacy on the day of her death. It took a year 
for Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences to complete the autopsy, and the findings raised some questions. The toxicology report indicated that a large amount of methamphetamine was found in Stacy's system, leading the medical examiner to conclude that drug intoxication was likely the primary cause of death, with potential asphyxiation due to the fact that she was laying face down in the mud and probably wouldn't have been able to move herself. Yeah. I mean, that does happen. That's why when they know that somebody, well, it's just the same thing if somebody's sick or unconscious, they, you know, it doesn't even have to have to do with drugs, but they they want you to lay the person on their side so that they don't like... Aspirate. Yeah, so they don't aspirate. would tuck it to keep them from rolling face forward. And I kind of what I got from reading the autopsy report was almost that the level of intoxication would have been such that she would not have been capable of moving herself or adjusting herself so that yeah. she would have been able to breathe. Um, assuming that was the only cause. Yeah. The interesting thing to me mm-hmm. with such a high level of drugs in her system, I wonder what she sounded like when she talked to the school. Yeah. Or the neighbor or not the neighbor, the resident. The, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, her family says that she didn't use drugs. And, you know, sometimes we hear that and people don't always want their family members to know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But when you look at her autopsy report and the general examination and findings, there's really not anything there that leads me to believe that she was a habitual drug user or anything like that. It actually... Yeah. I think explicitly says there's no track marks or needle punctures or anything like that. That's, yeah. The examiner also explicitly noted a concern for potential sexual assault, given that Stacy was partially undressed, her pants and shoes had been removed, and they further noted the appearance of dried blood both inside and outside of the vagina. Now, what was interesting was that they commented the examination of the genitalia and anorectal region does not reveal evidence of significant trauma. It doesn't say there wasn't trauma. It just says there was no evidence of significant trauma. Yeah. Blood has to come from somewhere. And they didn't men- mention, like, natural body, body fluids, like uh, her cycle or anything like that. No. Hmm. And there was no mention in the autopsy report of any sanitary products on the body whenever they received it. Yeah. So, hmm. blood has to come from somewhere, and the fact that it says there's no significant trauma, I mean, maybe that's reading too much into it, but you have to read what's on the page. Right. And if you take the totality of what they've reported, that that does leave it open for interpretation a bit, I think. It, it does a little bit. Because of the numerous contusions and bruises, state of partial undress, and the location of Stacy's body, the examiner left Stacy's manner of death as undetermined. One of the comments in the autopsy report said, alternatively, persons highly intoxicated with methamphetamine may often exhibit bizarre behavior, including inappropriate undressing. But they also said, due to the uncertainty concerning the reasons for the location of her discovery, and because of potential asphyxiation, accidental or intentional, I thought that was an interesting parenthetical, as the cause or contributing factor in her demise, 
the recommended manner of death is undetermined. I feel like there is enough in the opinion to raise questions. Absolutely. It's I a mean, much it's, more detailed opinion than what was in Michael Harden's opinion. Yeah. That's true. So we submitted a public records request to DFS for the autopsy report, which is how we know this information. We received the toxicology results along with that autopsy report. Interestingly, we received an amended autopsy report, which was dated May 2nd, 2017. That was the only autopsy report that we received. We talked to her sister after we noticed this and asked, did they have a copy of the original report? And they did, and they sent us a copy of it. That report was dated April 18th, 2017. And just a quick flip through of it, it doesn't really look like there's anything in it that warranted an amendment, but we're still going through it to compare the documents. There's several pages in here and there's a lot of words, so it's going to take us a little while to kind of compare those two. Um, Right. And I will be interested to find out. I mean, I don't know what constitutes them having to make an amendment? Was there just a misspelling or, you know, was there a finding that was different? I don't, I haven't been able to find anything yet, but I just kind of scanned through looking at like beginning and end words to see if they lined up on the same part of the page. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Seems like a long time afterwards to make an amendment though. And I just want to note too, the examiner did not say that Stacy had been sexually assaulted. They said they were concerned about sexual assault. Sure. They, you know, they said the condition of partial undress remains disturbing and is concerning for, but not proof of, sexual assault of the decedent at the location of her discovery or elsewhere. And I guess, you know. They were very, very pointed in what they say. They were very specific, I think. You know, I think they were careful about what they said the examiner and writing this report to make sure that what they meant was what they wrote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yep. You can read between the lines, but officially it says what it's supposed to say. And I mean, the parentheticals are in there to make sure by, like, I'm not saying this happened. It's not proof, but there's mm-hmm. a concern for that. There's the potential asphyxiation. I'm accidental or intentional which tells me if they thought you know there is the potential there for it being intentional or that parenthetical wouldn't be there but as of right now there doesn't appear to be anything that would make it intentional but i'm not any kind of medical person so it it still says something to me that that's in there yeah i agree yeah According to both reports, fingernail clippings and specimen for forensic biology were obtained. And these aren't the specimens that they use for the toxicology report because that's listed separately. It says blood, vitreous, humor, and liver for toxicology. And then it lists specimens for forensic biology. There's no indication that any of these items were sent for further testing and analysis. So I sent an email to DFS requesting confirmation. We were told they were forwarding that question to the appropriate personnel but we haven't heard back yet. It's really sad that it took a year. Yeah, that's what gets both me. Mm-hmm. There is a statewide issue with backlogs right now. Actually, I don't know that we have talked about a case yet. 
that we have not read. Oh, well, we haven't got that report yet back because there's a backlog. That's a problem. Yeah, 100% that's a problem. I mean. There's been a backlog <laughs> since at least the 90s. I was just going to say, how long, you know, does that go back? I mean, it seems like we hear that too much. I don't know what exactly the solution is to that, but it's same thing like with all the DNA testing and all of those things. seems like there's always a backlog. If there is not funding for the personnel to do this or, I mean, what I would like to know what is the issue. Um. Is it that there's not enough personnel to do this? Has there ever has there ever been a time when there hasn't been a backlog? Or right. because it seems like there's always a backlog. And if there has been a time, how do we keep running up on these backlogs? Or is it kind of an excuse for, oh, there was a delay in us sending this off? Um it's really frustrating because this could be resolved. There are outside resources. There are third-party laboratories. There are organizations that provide funding for those testing um, or to use those outside laboratories. And there are, for DNA, there are forensic genealogists. There are all kind of resources that could be utilized to get caught up on this backlog, which seems like that would be the smart thing to do Mm -hmm. if you just utilize them. But it seems like there is a problem at the moment with the agencies and DFS maybe working together. And I'm not blaming the agencies on this because from what we're hearing, it's not on the agencies. And I'm going to end up on a soapbox. Go for it. It it just makes me mad because it's causing families to have prolonged stress and grief. And it could all be resolved. It could also help clear the backlog. It could get, it could help so many things if a plan was put in place to help you know, mitigate this backlog. And even if it wasn't a permanent plan, but just maybe even a backup plan, let's temporarily put this in place. And when it looks like we're going to roll up to where we've got too many things that are going on that we can handle, let's go ahead and put that in place so that we go ahead and we start forwarding these things to a different agency so that we don't hit this point where we are years down the road and families still don't know. When you've got families that have a missing loved one and they are still waiting three years later to find out whether or not a body that's been found is their loved one, that is not right. No, I, I'm 100% behind you on that. I mean, like you said, you know, yes, we expect time to pass, but years, no. No. Years is ridiculous. And it shouldn't take years for DNA and cases to be reran. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like just to update it or whatever, to like check it again. That's why it is handy to have these other resources that can do that. Season of Justice provides funding. If the problem is a budget issue and you don't have the funds to do this, 
then you reach out to somewhere like Season of Justice or Cold Case Initiative, whose really main goal is to help provide funding to agencies to be able to do this third party fun- testing to help yeah. get this the- stuff out so that it's not just sitting there. Absolutely. A lot of um, agencies are partnering with other organizations to, you know, just further that cause. So there's too many options out there for this still to be happening, in my opinion. Exactly. And then you've got Moxie Forensic Investigation with Olivia McCarter, who is doing amazing things with the DNA profiling. I just love her to pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, She's great. She is great. Um you may have heard of her name recently because she worked on the Monica and Dalton case. Um, but she's been instrumental in making matches in multiple cases. And she will help you with the funding. You just have to reach out to her. And she's been working with Mobile County Sheriff's Office for a while now. The resources are there. You just have to ask for them. And I guess the reason that I got all off on this tangent is because it looks like there was evidence that was taken in Stacy's case at some point, but it doesn't appear anything was ever done with it. It could That's have been, appears. but yeah. nobody knows. Her family doesn't know because I checked with them too. Um, we don't know because, again, we did email Jackson County Sheriff's Office requesting a status in public, any public records, um, but haven't received a response back. So and there are certain some ones in this case that have records that would have that information probably on record at this point. Yeah. You know, so there would be comparisons to make. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, going back to the opinion that the medical examiner had, obviously the potential for the sexual assault had something to do with the examiner leaving the manner of death as undetermined. But it also makes me wonder, did they know about the petition for abuse that had been filed and that there was an upcoming hearing. Did they know mm-hmm. about these outside circumstances? Um, and would that have changed their peti- their opinion? It's possible they did because I think they share that sometimes. Yeah. I guess maybe if it's unknown because, I mean, as of right now, I guess the only way that we really know that somebody else was there besides Stacy is the fact that there was a witness who said that Stacy said, she was meeting somebody there. I don't know that there was an eyewitness that could say that there was anybody there with her besides her. Um, there is good circumstantial evidence with the footprints all over the place around the car. True. Yes. They should be able to look at that to tell was mm-hmm. it her shoes. And I don't know whether they found her pants or her shoes because that's not mentioned in the autopsy report. Yeah. And we didn't get any about I that. would like to know if I don't know how the drugs metabolize in the system. If you can tell when drugs were taken, like how 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 long the drugs have been in the system. Also wondering if she was asphyxiated purposely, not just fell in the mud and couldn't breathe, but if somebody held her face in the mud. If so, that's the case, I wonder if there was any indication of any kind of pressure or prints or any anything noticed like on the back of her head it probably was easily overlooked if they weren't looking for it right and her family did say that she was also covered in mud mm. because of where she was at 
yeah. talking about you would like to know, could you tell when she had taken it? Mm-hmm. I asked our good friend Michael about it. He said that just I sent him the reports to look at. He mm-hmm. said just with the reports, he didn't have enough information to speculate. And I probably should have asked him if he cared if I said this, but sorry, Michael. <laughs> Um, Michael's great. He won't mind. And he said there are there's a variety of factors that would influence that calculation. You know, one of the most important pieces would be the ratio of methamphetamine to amphetamine in what they actually took. The size of Michael compared to Stacy obviously is going to have some difference. But he also said, you know, did the methamphetamine that they have was it methamphetamine without any contamination from free amphetamine, which is unlikely if it was a street drug. So it was something that he said, you know, you really kind of need more information there to be able to look at that and say, okay, I'd say with those levels, here's the hours that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't doubt that somebody might will be able, I'm not saying that Michael couldn't do that because he's a genius. Um, there's probably there may be other information in there that um, we don't have that would allow for that to be figured out. But what was interesting in comparing Michael and Stacy's report is that Michael's methamphetamine levels were literally double the levels of Stacy's, yeah. and there was no mention of drug intoxication in Michael's autopsy report. And there was no mention about how the combination of methamphetamine and alcohol may have been contributing factors in his death. And even though it was a low amount of alcohol, it was a very Mm. high level of methamphetamine. And I think it's very odd that there was literally no mention of how that could have played in as a factor. Yep. It's really bizarre that it would have played into Stacy's, but it wouldn't have played into, that it wouldn't have played into Michael's. It in no way would have into his, because it's not mentioned. Right. Yeah. Why isn't it mentioned? So I guess that's the million dollar question, huh? That's another one of those questions. And I'm not saying there's anything bad about it, just that that could be a contributing factor to it. And it got left out, and the report was written June 20th, 2013, and his toxicology report was done April 26th, 2013. So that was already received months before the actual autopsy was performed. Again, months after he was found, although slightly less than Stacy's. Obviously, the backlog wasn't so bad at the time. Bugs me. Oh, there was also on Michael's photographs, fingerprints, blood and liver for toxicology and specimens for forensic biology are obtained. What are these specimens for forensic biology that they keep obtaining? Well, and that's, see, that's the, I guess that's the frustrating thing because they have the information to test, but they don't say that they did or they don't mention that they have information to test, but they did, but they still don't report it. You know, so it leads a lot to um, the imagination. It leaves a lot of unanswered questions. I guess, you know, 
we are working on cold cases and there's a reason they're cold. But it does get frustrating to read this. Yeah. I think probably one of the most frustrating things for families, even if a case is exactly what it looks like. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating for families whenever really they just want somebody to talk to about the questions that they have. Right. And they don't have somebody that they can talk to that, um, you know, maybe has the patience to sit down and answer those questions. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that that's always the case because I understand that sometimes it doesn't really matter what you say. There's, it's a hard thing to accept. Yeah. Um, in those cases and that maybe sometimes people aren't really willing to accept that. Mm -hmm. And it's a process, you know, there's steps to that. So, um, but a lot of it, most of the time, is that really they just need somebody to take the time to sit down and answer the questions that they have because it's the not answering and not finding time to sit there and do that that makes them feel like there's something that's not being said. As far as Stacy's case goes, her manner of death has been left as undetermined and her case has been essentially closed. Really, I think the only thing that's going to propel that forward any more is if somebody comes forward. Right. So we talked to Stacy's sister, Judy, and asked her if there was anything she would like to say. To anyone who has any information, we urge you to please come forward, as you could be the missing piece to this puzzle, and the person who was with Stacy when she took her last breaths, who feels that heaviness weighing on their conscience every night. The only thing that can relieve that burden is fully confessing. My sister was a kind person to her core, she did not deserve the in excess of 200 contusions and abrasions that the autopsy revealed. And while her manner of death was labeled as undetermined, it is clear to her family, friends, and loved ones that someone was determined to take her life. Please, please contact Jackson County Sheriff's Office at 256-574-2610 with any information that you may have. Thank you. We also wanted to be sure to recognize that it's possible that we have listeners who could feel unsafe in a relationship or know someone in their life who is. We are including the following contact information for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Please call 1-800-799-7233 or text START to 88788. Everyone deserves relationships free from domestic violence. Judy mentioned the Jackson County Sheriff's Office number, but we wanted to mention that Michael's contact information is also with the Jackson County Sheriff's Office. And that number again is 256-574-2610 or an anonymous tip on their website, which we'll include in the description. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, 
and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.